The challenge with radical acceptance is that we often don't like what's in the moment. Mm. It's often painful. So we often spend a lot of time avoiding paying attention to what's in the moment. Welcome to Hope to Recharge podcast. Thank you for joining me here again today. Every week we meet here to break the stigma around mental health and to bring you insight and inspiration and lots of practical tips from personal stories or professionals around the world that share how they turn their journey of mental health into healing or to thriving. Together we will break the stigma one story at a time. And mental health together is always better. Thank you for joining me here today. I'm your host, Matana. Let's get started. On this week's episode of the Hope to Recharge podcast, we welcome Dr. Blaise Aguirre and Dr. Jillian Galen. Dr. Galen is an instructor in psychology at Harvard Medical School, program director and assistant director of training for the Three East Girls Residential, a unique DBT program for young women exhibiting self-endangering behaviors and borderline personality traits at the Harvard-affiliated McLean Hospital. She specializes in the treatment of adolescents and their families using DBT and is the author of several books on DBT. Dr. Aguirre is a medical doctor an expert in child psychology, including psychotherapy and psychopharmacology, and has worked extensively with children and their families. He's an author and speaker on various aspects of mood, personality, and development in children and adolescents. He's medical director for a residential dialectable behavior therapy program for young women exhibiting self-endangering behaviors and borderline personality traits at 3 East, a Harvard-affiliated McLean Hospital, and has been a staff psychiatrist at McLean Hospital since 2000. He's also an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and lives in in Lexington, Massachusetts, with his wife and four children. In this episode, we discuss DBT in detail, radical acceptance, what it is and what it's not, dialectical thinking, mindfulness, and gratefulness. And now, your host for the Hope to Recharge podcast, Matana. This episode is sponsored by DBT Path. My emotions were all over the map, and even though I knew in my heart that I was capable, bright, and had potential, I'd repeatedly do things that others would say was self-sabotaging. I didn't want to sabotage myself. I just truly didn't know how to manage my emotions. And believe me, I'd tried a lot of things. It wasn't until I learned dialectical behavior therapy, DBT skills, that I learned how to embrace my sensitivity and finally feel in control. Whether for you it's BPD by bipolar, anxiety, PTSD, or any other reason that you regularly experience intense emotions, you can create the life that you want all online in a caring, non-judgmental community. Go to EmotionallySensitive.com now and join us. Learn DBT skills. Change your life. Here we are with the authors of DBT for Dummies, therapist Jillian Gallen and Dr. Blaise Aguirre, two giants, in my opinion, that gifted us their time. I'm very excited to have you here. Thank you for joining me here. Thank you for taking time out of your very busy, important life to share your wisdom with our audience. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having us. We, we love teaching. So awesome. Thank you for having us. Okay. So I want to first give the audience a little bit of a background that they should understand. Not everybody read your book, even though I was promoting it on my Instagram. And I was so excited when, when you came out with it. It was only like a short month ago, right? A month and a half ago, mm-hmm. something like that, right? Yeah. And um, I love the title because it, it gives everybody permission to pick it up, right? Like it doesn't say, oh, wait, what? Wait, what's DBT? I don't know what DBT is. I hear what DBT is. Like, okay, you know what? 
this is a step-by-step. This is for me if I'm not in DBT yet or if I'm in DBT and I'm not really understanding how it's going to help me and where I'm going to go with it. So I was telling both of you that we had six episodes breaking the stigma on borderline personality disorder and Marsha Linehan changed the world for with DBT, especially for highly sensitive people, especially for people that are diagnosed with borderline. And I believe that DBT should be taught in, in preschool. Like slowly, DBT is a whole, whole, whole picture of a, a lifestyle, of a mindset, mm-hmm. and it's not one thing. And, and we learned this from my uh, in- previous interviews, and I had learned it, that it's a whole way of life. What I want to understand before we start, first of all, how did you get to know each other and why did you decide to write this book? Jillian, you start. So, so I actually got to know Blaze. I graduated from college at Tufts University in Boston. And I was thinking of psychology. So I applied for a bachelor's level position at McLean. A bunch of people had said that was if you want to see what really psychology is, if you want to see what these behavioral treatments are, go to McLean. So I went to McLean and he was a psychiatrist there. So that was actually when I met Blaze the first time. And that was actually my introduction to DBT. So I was 22 years old and I was introduced to this therapy that I'd never heard of. And I loved it. It was pragmatic. It was mindfulness-based. And it was working with some of the kids that, you know, when I was 22, they were really suffering. They were coming in after suicide attempts or multiple suicide attempts, self-injury and feeling like no one could help them. And all of a sudden, I was teaching them these skills, and they were having this therapy, and things were starting to change. So I was fascinated. Then I went off and I got my doctorate. And that's when actually Three Eats, the DBT unit that Blaze and I run now, opened while I was gone. And I came back and I was their first postdoctoral fellow and started my training there and have um, stayed. So that was the part where Blaze and I began to work really closely together. And then over the years, you know, we both were really committed to the treatment. We were very committed to mindfulness and the practice of mindfulness and working with some of the kids in the families that were really deeply suffering. You know, they they often called our unit psychiatric ICU. Mm. These were kids and families that nothing had worked and that people maybe didn't want to. And so I think, you know, from then, you know, Blaze and I have been in it wholeheartedly together. And I think we became friends and he'd written some books and asked if I wanted to write a book, which is our first mindfulness book. And we did that one. And then we just and it kept kept going. And, you know, I over over the years, I've just really loved teaching and we've done a lot of teaching together. And so, yeah, we, you know, I practice the treatment and I, you know, I love helping families and, you know, adolescents and adults figure out how to actually do things to change their life, improve it and to suffer less. Wow. Wow. So you're very lucky. You're really lucky because how many students get to actually work and then be a partner a co-partner with with somebody that they look up to and help them through their their journey of becoming who they are. Wow, Dr. Blaze, that's amazing. That, that, first of all, I think it's like a humbling thing to say this relationship. What I want to ask you, Dr. Blaze, as a psychiatrist, I say about my psychiatrist, and there's an episode on my psychiatrist, and a lot of my clients went to my psychiatrist. I say, if you don't find the right psychiatrist, it could be a death sentence. We give so much, I would say like our vulnerability and we just say like, fix us with medication. I was not eating. I was not sleeping. I was suicidal. I was in and out of the hospital and I had three children. And I remember I couldn't even speak. I couldn't even swallow a banana. Like my goal was to drink a half a protein shake. And my psychiatrist said, I can give you medication and it's going to fix the symptoms. But if you want to heal, you have to practice mindfulness, yoga, meditation, exercise, 
boundaries, forgiveness. And I thought that every psychiatrist says that, by the way, how I was wrong. I call him my guardian angel because if I could, and I, and I, I went to one psychiatrist, gave me medication, did not follow up on me. And I was suicidal that night. And then I realized, I called my aunt that was a therapist. And I'm like, give me the top psychiatrist in Midtown Manhattan that all the rich and famous go to because they don't mess up with, their, with anything. They, they like to go to the top and give me the top because this is brain surgery. And he sat with me for three hours explaining to me what's going on and what's the chemical imbalance and how it works. So Dr. Blaze, to have another guardian angel in the world that doesn't only care about big pharma, that cares about our mind and how the tools that we have in our mind. My question to you is like, how did you come across that? And not just say, I'm going to just give pills. I'm just going to subscribe pills. Well, wow. Big, big, big question. And by the way, when you talk about, you know, working with people that you can look up to and, and admire, it, that's what working with Dr. Galen is. I look up to her and I admire her. So it was an easy, easy partnership. I suppose that fundamentally a very, very practical person. And, you know, as a believer in science, I like to see cause and effect and see correlation. So what was interesting is, let us say that you come to me as a patient and you say, I'm really anxious. So then I give you a pill and then you say, okay, maybe it works and maybe it doesn't. But then when my friend calls me and says, hey, I'm really anxious, I say, why don't you come on over? We'll go for a walk. Mm. Why do I say that? Because in the context of getting out and doing some exercise, talking, breathing, something like that, your anxiety goes down. But you come in as a patient and I give you a pill. or you say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm drinking too much. So I give you a pill to stop you drinking. But then I'm talking to a friend. I say, okay, you know what? Let's go to a party, but you know what? We won't drink. Or, 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 or we'll, we'll find a different way to get through, the, through this moment. I thought, okay, there needs to be all this like complicated psychology to healing. But, you know, for myself, if I exercised, if I ate well, if I slept, if I maintained healthy relationships with people I cared about. I felt better. There's no pill in that. Now, here's the other thing is, if I give you a prescription and then you call me up three hours later and say, my pharmacy hasn't approved this, my health insurance hasn't approved this, but you don't need prior authorization to go for a walk or to take a breath. And, and you know, you're very, I mean, I suppose you can exercise to the point where it's unhealthy, but you can also exercise healthy, or you can, t- you can do mindfulness. You know, you're not going to overdose on these, on these sorts of things. And so for me, you know, I love the theories of psychoanalysis. They are beautiful theories. And people would say these big things about the mother and the, and the grandmother and all of these sorts of things. And fine. But you know what? Those weren't the things that made me feel settled. If anything, when I started to talk to the person about the mother, they got more upset when what they wanted to do was, was, was get less upset. So one more thing about this, and that is this. We often talk to people when they are in a state of being upset. But when any of us are upset, we can't think. So we want to regulate ourselves before we can have a discussion. When your house is on fire, me talking to you about Nietzsche or Socrates makes no sense because you want to put that fire out. And, but we're often in psychological fire. We're often in tremendous distress and sort of getting back to a point of regulation through healthy connections, through healthy living, through exercise and stuff like that is the way. So what appealed to me was that this seemingly very simple approach of DBT was actually the one that was being the most healing, much more than any other approach I'd ever tried. 
And so it just made sense that helping people suffer less through this approach was the way that I wanted to follow. How many years are you practicing TBT? I'll tell you a funny story. And Jillian wasn't there at the time. I walked into a classroom and they were saying, well, we're going to do some DBT, which is the treatment for borderline personality disorder and similar things at the time. So I walk into this classroom and they're about to ring a bell and they said, put a raisin in your mouth. How are you talking about put a raisin in my mouth? So they say, yeah, put a raisin in your mouth and observe it. And I'm thinking, how the hell are raisins going to cure borderline personality disorder? Putting a raisin in your mouth cures borderline personality disorder. But the point wasn't that. It was a mindfulness practice. I've never heard of mindfulness. Never? Well, you know what? I, if you say to me, think about mindfulness. So I'm thinking, oh, you mean like those Buddhist guys up, exactly. up in Tibet sitting in a cave? Right. It sounds kind of fun. Right. But it was something like, I, don't, I didn't need it. I wasn't suffering. Right. I had everything I wanted. Right. Why should I have to pay attention in that way? But it was like the first time I thought, like, wait, what? And, and then I started to see that. The other thing was this. Patients always liked me. I had no problem with that. Because you're, like you're South because African. You're South African. Exactly. And and exactly. You, you could be a, 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 just a, a nice anything. guy without even at, Right. Exactly. Okay. I'll be your friend just for being exactly. South African. Exactly. Exactly, right? But the thing is this, all the liking in the world wasn't getting them better. Mm. Is it enough to like your therapist? It's nice that you like your therapist. But if they're not helping you get to where you want to go, all the liking in the world, Mm. all the understanding in the world doesn't get you there. And so one thing that I thought is that people said that they like me, okay, but I've got friends, but they weren't getting better. So I thought, what I'm doing isn't working. So in 2000 and seven, I, you know, started to, to sort of think a little bit more. And we started this unit in 2007, Julian joined, I think the year after, and, you know, it was experimental. No, you know, like the idea of having very dysregulated people on one unit was, was hard to contemplate, but, you know, we, you know, we've had more than 3000 people from all over the world come and, and join us. You know, it's not perfect, but it's much, much better than what we had before. Jillian, I told you before we started this podcast, we should start just a specific podcast for DBT, like mm-hmm. ongoing. And I, I feel like even therapists are evolving with what Marsha's putting out. She put out a recently a book and like everybody's evolving because it's something so new to psychology. And I remember I, I interviewed a therapist and, and she was telling me about DBT coaching. I'm like, what? You're available all the time. So I'm like, what? You don't have boundaries and DBT is all about boundaries. I'm like, where's the boundaries for the therapist? I don't understand. I can call you anytime. Like when, when are they working on themselves if they reach out for help? She's like, no, it's a commitment to a way of supporting. And that in itself is like such a, a, a mind shift for therapists. But okay, so this, this episode, we really want to deep dive into radical acceptance. I find that so many people struggle with this idea. And DBT, one of the big things is mindfulness, radical acceptance, and many other. But radical acceptance is one of their like MOs, right? Radical acceptance. And everybody's like, but what is that? And how do I practice? Okay, great. I'm in a horrible marriage. I'm 30 years into it. I just realized lately that I've been working for years and years and years on it. It's not working. I'm This one's not doing the work. They're not. What do I do now? And I, I say, maybe, maybe look into radical acceptance. And they're like, what's that? So Jillian, give us a little bit rundown of what it's okay. not and what it right. is and why is it so important for people that are highly sensitive, first of all, and for average humans that 
so many of us go through this roller coaster of emotions and we're like, okay, come come back to center and do the work. So radical acceptance. So acceptance skills are like half of, of DBT, right? So DBT is the synthesis of mindfulness-based therapy and acceptance skills and cognitive behavioral therapy and change skills. And one of the cool things about DBT, right, is it works along these dialectics, this idea that two opposing things can be true at the same time. I can accept where you are and I can push you to change. Maybe sometimes I'm more accepting, sometimes more pushing you towards change. The beautiful thing, although often painful thing about radical acceptance is that when we can accept the reality that is in front of us, and this is the biggest mistake about radical acceptance, radical acceptance is the practice of wholeheartedly opening your eyes to the reality that is in front of you right now. So it's not oh, I'm going to accept that I'm never going to be happy in my life or I'm never going to have a job or I'm never going to get married or no one's ever going to love me or I'm never going to go to college. That's resignation. That's resigning to a very bleak future in which I've made up a story, a bleak one usually, of a future that hasn't happened. You can't accept a future that hasn't happened because it hasn't happened. So all we can do is accept the very moment that we're in. And what's interesting is that when we accept the moment that we're in, if we want to change it, we actually are paying attention to what we want to change. We can actually see the whole picture. We can see the problems. We can see solutions. But we can get clarity when we accept what's in the moment. Now, the challenge with radical acceptance is that we often don't like what's in the moment, Mm. right? It's often painful, right? So we often spend a lot of time avoiding paying attention to what's in the moment, right? And some people avoid in more or less adaptive ways, right? Sometimes we use maladaptive behaviors and we really avoid the reality. And sometimes it's just a a gentle avoidance that leads to sort of longstanding misery. Now, one of the problems that people come up against with radical acceptance is number one, it's a practice of acceptance over and over and over again. So we maybe get into acceptance, And then we have a thought or a feeling or a smell or a memory, or we see something or we hear something and it's gone. And we have to recommit to coming back to it again. Some things are easier to accept than others. Now, when we accept something, this is why I always teach, and this is often what trips all of us up with radical acceptance, is with acceptance comes loss. So when I accept something in the moment, I often have to let go of something else. And grieve right? it. And the, yeah, and the problem is, is that like, we don't like to let go of those. Those are the things like things that we hoped for, things that we expected, right. things that we thought about ourselves or other mm-hmm. people or relationships. Right. So we have feelings when we accept. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it is the practice. Because I might get, just like when we grieve, is that we move into acceptance, right? And then we have a memory or a thought or something that reminds us. And we go back, like, this can't be. This shouldn't have happened. This is unfair. And now we're back in suffering. We've lost acceptance. And our task in the practice is to, okay, I lost acceptance. I got to, I, oh, I'm out of acceptance. How do I get back in? So it's a very active and often challenging practice because over and over and over again. Can we ever get to real acceptance? Like, is there a place that we're like, okay. I'm done. I accept it. I'm never going to have that. Or is it always the smell, the place, the picture, the memory? Is it always going to revisit us? Like, can we come to a degree of saying, I reached the top? Blaze, you're smiling. Do you have a thought? I, yeah, I would love to hear what you say, Dr. Blaze. So I don't, I don't, and I, I'll tell you why I don't think that 
that what you're suggesting is possible. And that is because life by its nature is impermanent. So, so for instance, I, you know, when my mom died and I was, you know, probably she, she was the closest person to me in my, in my life, even just thinking about it 10 years on, I still miss her. I still get sad, you know, and, and I say, I accept that she is no longer with us. Now, I was cleaning up some stuff and I found some letters from her the other day. Oh. And, it, and, it, and, and they were letters, very meaningful letters to me, you know, about our relationship. And so what happened is in, in that moment, I then started to miss her and then I got, I got sad again. So it's not, a, it's, what I'm saying is, is, it's not like, oh my gosh, I thought I had accepted this. Now it's coming back. I shouldn't be feeling the way that, that we do. But the practice was also practicing that she is gone, also practicing that I found those letters, also practicing that I still miss her and that I'm sad and that it's okay. It's okay to be in that space without saying like, it shouldn't have happened this way. I should spend more time with her. Because when we go to all of those moments, we rob ourselves of an opportunity to be in a state of truth. Like, it's beautiful that I can be sad in that moment. It's beautiful that I can reread those letters and contextualize them in that moment. I often think about, about regret. You know, people regret that they should have done this or they should have done that. But here's the thing is, the only moment that we ever live in is the present moment. So if I think about this, do I regret this moment? So it's 2.30 East Coast time right now. Do I regret this moment? And I think to myself, I don't regret this moment. But now, a year from now, if I think about this moment and I say, oh, did I regret that moment? No, because I lived my fullest in this moment. So it's easy to accept things that you like. You know, I accept that my team won. It's very difficult to accept things that you don't like. But the reality of it doesn't change whether you like something or not. I was stuck in traffic some time ago, and I hated it. So look at all this traffic. By the way, I don't say I am traffic too, because the person in the car next to me is thinking, look at all this traffic, and I'm part of that. Mm. But then I was with a friend. I was stuck in traffic, and I'm thinking, I'm really loving this. Now, so what's changed? I mean, the traffic, you know, so my own internal state, whether I like it or not like it, that doesn't change reality. So acceptance is like, like it's, it's a recognition and then, and then what do you do with the reality? Because all too often when people don't accept reality, they do things that make their life much, much worse. Either they deny reality and it comes back and bites them, or they, they act in ways that are inconsistent with their long-term goals, or they, you know, they overreact and then they start to damage relationships and things like that. So you, know, you may not like radical acceptance, but once you start accepting the truth in this particular moment, and again, you can only accept this moment ever. You can't accept a future. You know, people often get so how can I accept that my person is going to suffer for the rest of their lives? And well, that's not radical acceptance. That's storytelling. Mm-hmm. You know, you can only accept this moment. What is in this moment? And by the way, when you pay attention to this moment, for most of us, this moment is not so bad. Mm-hmm. It's actually all right. This moment, it's okay. I can deal with this moment. It's the narrative of the past. And it's the, the narrative that you can't accept. Right. Yeah. It's the whole narrative of the past and the future or disaster that we're afraid of that we're bringing into the now. So the now is robbed from us, even though the now, if someone promised us that the now is going to change in five minutes, we would be totally okay in the now. So I understand it here, but here in my heart, 
like I'm thinking about, I'll, I'll give you three different scenarios and both of you, you'll, you'll chime in. So one of them in the, ortho, I'm going to give you from the Orthodox world. I'm, I, I live in the Orthodox world. I am an Orthodox. I grew up Orthodox. It's very accepted by us that we get married very early on. So it, the, the very early on can go from 18 till like 30. 30 is like, oh no, what's going to be? What's going to be? What's going to be? Now it could be that it could be great that I that a person is not married because they can focus on their career and what they love on travel and like not dealing with children, not being tied down. But the thought, oh no, what if I'm going to be single forever? What if there's no one to marry because after 30, they're already not the the kind of people that we want to hang out with. So that and then they go into this like state of. I don't want to belong here, even though the here is exactly what you said now, Dr. Blaze. Like right here is great because I have freedom and I'm okay. But what if in five years from now in the same place and I don't, and I'm, then I'm lonely. And then what if I'm, I'm 60 and I'm going to be lonely forever? And so they don't want to accept it. They don't want to accept it and they're fighting it. And there's so much pain. And now me that's married with five children, I, there's, I'm not allowed to speak. And I don't think it's fair for me to speak because I don't know their pain. I don't know their pain. I'm not allowed to address their pain. But I often say, work with radical acceptance. And I'm like, and what's that going to do for me? So let's, let's elaborate on this a little bit. Let me so, just say one yeah. thing, and, and then Julian answer, because I think she'll probably be a little bit clearer. You know, one of the things about that statement, you know, so what if? He, he, here's the thing. If, if we are the authors of our life, we can end the story in many different ways. Why is it? Like people say, okay, well, what if I'm not married in five years' time? You know, who's going to love me? I'm going to be alone. I'm going to be sitting by myself. Who's going to come and do Shabbat with me? And I'm going to have to do all the candles and everything all by myself and everything. Okay, that's one story. What about this story? What about like, wow, I'm going to be single. I'm going to be able to travel whenever I want. I'm going to be able to hang out and go to different uh, seders whenever I want. I'm going to be able to... um, uh, travel. I'm going to be able to study. No one's ever. So, yes, if you t- you can always tell yourself the most the worst story, but you can also uh, why do you tell yourself those stories? And maybe you could say, well, those are the stories that you fear most. Okay, but you don't have to live that life. It's not determined. It's not written down somewhere that that is the path that you're going to take. So I often say, okay, that's one. That's one story. Tell me another story. Tell me another story. There's infinite stories. But you only tell me the sad ones. Well, you know, I have to tell you, I'm very depressed now. Maybe I should go and see a psychiatrist because you've told me so many terrible stories. Right. So, so that's just one thought about that. But Yeah, I have similar thoughts. I mean, emotions hijack our thinking. And this is where mindfulness and radical acceptance come in. If that's what you're frightened of, then that's where your mind is going to go. What if this? What if this? What if this? What if this? Now, the problem with people for their, in their lives when they live in the what if they often end up with terrible self-fulfilling prophecies because they end up so consumed and so anxious. I'm not going to meet someone. I'm not going to meet something that they either in their awareness or not in their awareness start to behave in such a way that actually leads them to not meet the very people that actually might be right in front of them. They're so anxious. They have a hard time going out. They get awkward. They get, they don't know what to say. They get so frightened about what to wear they, you know, get too loud or too quiet or right. right. That they, they aren't themselves because they're right. unable to be present because again, they're still living in that future. I often tell people one of the things to work with, with the what if, is that if you have to just what if 
like because it's all it's like what Blaze said it's fiction mm-hmm. it's just fiction I've made up this story and it's driven by my fear which is you know taking over my thinking that it's now becoming very hard to think about anything else is you have to get present in this moment and you can say something like I don't know when I'm going to meet someone as opposed to what if this and what if this what if this it's like you know right now I'm not sure when that person is going to cross my path I'm not sure when I'm going to find somebody and actually if you can stay in that which stays keeps you in a little bit of the anxiety right a little the anxiety is still there it helps you at least stay present. I'm going to go out tonight and we'll see what's going to happen. But, but what if, is in- yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, go on. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I, so I want to go to that present, but what if now is brutal? I'm so lonely and I don't have who to go out with and there's no one on mm-hmm. the horizon and the loneliness mm-hmm. is brutal. Like coming out of Corona, the singles were alone. So it's not like there was anything in the now that was nice. Mm-hmm. If the now is okay, Okay, I could I could deal with that. But what if the now is brutal and it is so lonely and all I want is a hug, all I want is a kind word, especially with people that are they're highly sensitive. So they're feeling everything to the 10th degree. How do we accept the now? Like, you know, we talk about the power of the now and be in the now, but what if I don't want to be in the now because the now is brutal? Okay. You know what? Actually, I was dealing with this with with one of my with one of my patients who's saying, you know, like. This now is so brutal, it's so painful. All I want to do is connect with people. So, so to Jillian's point, she was saying, well, you know, like, it's just, it's just so painful. I, you know, I don't like how I'm feeling. You know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to stay at home and I'm going to isolate because I just, it's just, I, I, like, I'm not my best. I can't be out there. So now the problem is this. The very thing that the person needs to do, which is to go out, they don't do. And then it does become that self-fulfilling prophecy. So if you were to say this, when you're suffering in the now because you are so lonely, what are the options that you have now? You can stay lonely or you can recognize like, I don't like loneliness. I don't like the pain of being alone. I don't like the pain of not being connected. But staying isolated doesn't answer the solution. And yes, it's painful. I'm accepting the pain. Because here's the thing is, I can say, this is so painful. I'm going to get drunk tonight so I don't feel that pain. Doesn't get you given. No one gives you a hug except for the beer bottle. Or I'm just going to reject that it is. So I'm just not going to go out. So the problem is, is that, yes, acknowledge that pain. It's, it's, but without taking that first step of showering, getting dressed, taking that step out of the door, you are never going to answer the problem of the loneliness because you have to be out there. So accepting reality isn't saying that all is wonderful. It is also accepting that you're in pain. If I have a toothache and I just numb it out all the time, yes, I've got no pain, but now my tooth is rotten and now I need surgery. It's like saying, this is painful. I accept it. I have to go to the dentist, the South African one. And you wrote that in the book that the, the best way of thinking of solutions of how to get out of the pain is when we accept it denying it, being upset about it. Of course, radical acceptance is is the grief, the frustration, the resentment, all those stages. But when we recognize the pain and we we dwell in it and we're like, okay, this is it, instead of trying to avoid it, those are the best moments that the creativity and our mind goes into, okay, in order to change this, what are the best things that we can do? And that's what Jillian was saying, right? When we 
when we were mindful of what the pain is and we're not trying to deny it, we can actually be creative of saying, okay, fine, it's really painful. I don't want to stay in this forever. So what can I do? So now I'm going to take you to the next question, which is going to go a little deeper into radical acceptance. What if, Dr. Blaze, we lose a loved one? And I'm not talking about a parent because a parent is nature that a parent should go first. Yes, also. Yes, also. But it's not a tragedy. Should I say it that way? Maybe if it's a young parent with little children. Let's talk about a tragedy, a brother, a sister of a young family, a child, God forbid a spouse that just started life. Like, let's think about that. A spouse has a stroke and no longer can communicate. Aphasia, we lose something that cannot come back. And we're earlier on in life. We're not at that middle life. We're early on in life or middle, middle life. There's no practicality of changing it. There's really acceptance and acceptance only. Yeah. So so it's funny because I'm, I'm the eldest of eight children. So when I was in medical school, people would say, are you Orthodox or are you Catholic? I wanted to say the same thing. I'm like, I know you're not Orthodox, so what are you? So exactly. So although, let me just say, they, they think that our family is Murano originally, but you know, grew up Catholic. And so, so when I was 24, I got a phone call from my brother that my sister, who was three years younger than me, my first sister had been killed uh, by a drunken driver. And, you know... Like again, to this day, to this day, I miss her. Now there were seven of us, so there, she was one of eight. That exact situation, never coming back. I loved her, really, really close to her, never coming, never coming back. And there were, you know, seven of us, and each of us had a slightly different reaction. Like one wanted to, you know, go to the law and get the police involved and, and arrest the guy and all of that stuff. But, you know, this is where I saw my mother's practice of acceptance. This is when I first began to understand the the concept of acceptance, that she was at peace with it. How could you be at peace with Mm -hmm. this? Because she said, you know what? The only thing that I can do is I can honor the life that she lived and miss her. But everything else that I do, rejection of reality and everything is going to pull me away from the reality of the beauty of the relationship. And when I thought about that, when I thought about how do I honor the relationship I with my sister, the life that she lived, accepting you know, that this tragedy happened, and that as I imagined her up in heaven or in, in the universe or whatever it is, looking down, that she would want me to, to, to kind of sanctify the relationship that we had and to, and to not suffer. And so it's like I would get into that like non-acceptance, but then just saying, you know, we had this wonderful relationship and she taught me a lot and I miss her, but I'm not going to now get angry at other people. I'm not going to harbor the bitterness and then allow that to toxify my mind. It's just saying, you know, this is what it is. So it was much more painful early on, but then as I practice more of this acceptance, I still talk to her in my mind. Now people think, okay, maybe, you know, but in my mind, I'm like, I'm still connected to her. That's where she exists, you know, in a, in a certain way. So, so in many ways, she, I still feel that she's with me, even though, you know, not in that physical presence. Part of what I think about in terms of radical acceptance is what are the consequences of not accepting? What do I look like when I'm in non-acceptance? How do I act with myself? How do I act with other people when I'm in non-acceptance? 
So those are just some thoughts. DBT has this little equation, which is pain plus non-acceptance equals suffering. I thought, didn't Marsha call it misery? Like if you stay in pain, if you, without yeah. growth, it's misery. So if you yeah. evo- write something like that, you can change the pain into misery or into yeah. suffering if you don't do something with it. If you don't accept it. So that's right. the interesting thing. So yeah. if you accept it, so like if you think about Blaze's example, so he used in DBT what we would call the make meaning skill right. from the distress tolerance improve acronym. But he couldn't have made the meaning of his sister's life and how he wanted to keep her with him if he hadn't accepted first. Mm. So what we know is that when you don't accept, you suffer. You just suffer profoundly and you move into misery. When you accept, you're left with pain, right? You're just left with the pain of the loss Mm -hmm. and that the pain ebbs and flows, right? There's probably days where Blaze thinks a lot about her, days when he thinks less about her, holidays, birthdays, letters that he finds, right? But that that ebbs and flows and what his experience is not of non-acceptance and suffering, right, which incapacitates him or takes over him and makes him angry or rageful. He just feels sad, which is exactly what you would want to feel. Like that makes perfect sense. And then he experiences the sadness and it passes. And then some other memory comes back and he has sadness. But we can manage sadness. So that's the thing, right? We all have learned, like learned skills. We can teach people skills how to manage that kind of pain and sadness. But misery and suffering, much harder. It's harder to live with. It's very hard to treat. I I can't say amen enough to that, but I still know, um, and I'm going to bring the next, the next, I I understand the, the death part a little bit, a little bit, because I still didn't go through it. And so I can't say I understood until you step into that. And you, you really can't, like, you can't feel a pain and let that's why you say there's a difference between empathy and sympathy because I can never feel what you went through because I didn't go through it. But so here in my mind, I understand and in theory, but I find now I'm going to go to the next step where I find that people really, really are resistant to this. For example, in rape, in murder, you had a case of murder, like, but it wasn't, it was a drunk driver. He didn't do it on purpose. But let's say, for example, in Israel, an Arab comes into a family, brutally murders a seven-year-old while she's sleeping. There is zero tolerance for that. Like there's zero. There's no way of, of rationalizing that, right? And the family has to come to acceptance. How do we accept rape of a little child? Like how do we, how do we, like, because our brain goes to, but it's not okay. And if I accept it, that means it's okay. And there's always that, I'm sure you, you're both, saying yes, because right, that's the first thing. Oh, if I accept it, I mean, it's okay. I'm giving, I'm coming to peace with it. And I don't want to ever come to peace that someone raped my sister, my daughter, myself, whatever it is, right? Our murder. There's certain things that are unacceptable. And when we say unacceptable, and then we go to radical acceptance, how does that work? No, I, so I think that my philosophically, I'm pretty Buddhist in the sense that I, I believe in, in, in practicing no harm. And, you know, I was reading about brutal murder of a child. And, you know, I was thinking about it. What if it happened to my own kid? And I have to tell you that when my mind went, it was so dark that at the end of the day, I had, you know, like, you know, really done some very damaging things to the person who had hurt my child. And, and when I thought about that, and okay, maybe I get caught and maybe I get thrown in prison. And maybe people would say, well, we understand why he did it. 
But the problem was this. In as painful and as difficult as even going through that thought experiment, let alone whatever the family that actually lost a child went through, is that the person that I become in non-acceptance is not the person who I want to be, is not the person who's going to be helpful to my family, to my friends, to my patients, to my loved ones. Because if I lose a child like this, and I am now bitter, and now I am angry, you know what? I've lost more than one child. Mm. I've lost my relationships. I've lost my friends. I've lost my other children. And so, yeah, I can, I can think about the injustice of it all. We, we, had a, we had a family that, that lost one of their kids to borderline personality disorder. And to lose a child to, to BPD through suicide is just devastating. They turned that into a foundation. And to this day, they treat, they train DBT therapists, they train families. So they, they turned their suffering into something that, that would, would be uplifting because the alternative was to be resentful, was to be angry. And that's toxin to you. Not only has the rapist and the murderer done this to your child, they continue to do this to you through what goes on in your mind. Because imagine that that person has not gone and you continue to resent and to hate. Those are toxins to your brain. That doesn't mean you don't get sad. But what I'm saying is, is that don't lose more than just one child. So how do you accept the situation without accepting the action. So there, there's a really, I think, useful practice that I do, that I do with, with people I work with, I do with friends, where you sit, it's a meditation, and you say something to yourself like, I don't like it. I don't support it. I don't think it's fair. And I can accept it. So they're both true, right? And th- this is- and that's this is the, the dialectic, right? This is DBT, right? And so DBT is so much more than skills. I mean, we talk about mm-hmm. skills. Mm-hmm. But you can't do radical acceptance without truly in these moments being dialogue. They're both true. I can accept it so that whatever horrible thing happened doesn't eat me alive and take me away from my life and the people I care for. Right. And I can still disagree with it. I don't have to like it. And that I think is you're exactly right. That's where people get caught. They think if I accept it, somehow I'm approving of it or I'm endorsing of it or I'm letting you off the hook. Or I'm fooling my mind and it's toxic positivity and it's not, and it's going to backfire. The hardest things to radically accept really demand, it's a diet, we call it a dialectical tension. There's tension there. I can disagree with something. I can think that it's unfair because it might be unfair. And I can accept it so that, like Blaze said, I'm not lost too. So you're not like basically just giving up on life because you, you, if, if a loved one left, and you're not willing to live anymore. And that we're not saying that you don't give the grief. It's, it's not something that's one, two, three magic. It takes time. Dr. Blaze, I know you have to go in five minutes. So maybe for the next few minutes, explain to us this process of acceptance. And it's not like this, okay, push a button. I accept it. Okay, it's a, my, let's find meaning. Let's find a, start a foundation. Let's go to groups. Let's, what's the process of going through this? Uh, you know, I, 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 I for me, the, the way, especially when there's something painful that, that has happened, this is where the self-validation comes in. I think that one of the problems I have with what you call toxic positivity, it's like, okay, let's make meaning about this, or like there's this, you know, everything has a silver lining, or it doesn't, 
it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. And, and, and all these sort of like little cliches that are just inconsistent with, with, with what you feel. And I think it's like, I, you know, it's like that powerful recognition that what you're experiencing is, is the reality of your situation. Sometimes we look at other people and they think, how are they doing it? And who knows? But, but you have to, first of all, endorse that what you're experiencing is the reality of your situation. That's the first thing. The, thing, the second thing is, is that you know, no amount of rejection of reality is ever going to change reality. You can re- reject that something terrible happened, but you, you know, there's no going back. You can't go back. What has happened has, in fact, happened. And rejecting that it happened doesn't change the reality of it. So it's also saying this is actually what happened. The third step is when I dwell on the pain of the suffering, on the rejection of what happened, what does that do to me as a human being? Does it get me closer to my dreams? Does it get me closer to the people that I love? Does it get me in a state of forward thinking, openness, self-reflection? Or does it make me bitter towards society? Does it estrange me from the people who are still there? Does it honor the person that I have lost? And so, so I also have to look at what I, what I look like. And I see people who suffer and then they just like, no, I don't want to do anything. I lost someone. I don't want to do anything. But now they're losing so many other people and it's impacting them again. And it's like then saying, you know, given that this is it, given that I'm so profoundly sad, given that this has had an impact, what is the present best version of myself? How do I move forward in this context and not get stuck in dwelling, in playing this over and over and over again in my head because it's already happened once. It doesn't need to happen a thousand more times. So it's, it's accepting that that is what has happened. There's that dialectical tension and still striving to be the best version of who I am because it is consistent with my values and it's consistent with the relationships that are meaningful to me. And when you think, okay, now I'm going to just sit there and cry for the next 10 years, what's that done to all the other relationships? What's that done to your own dreams? What's this done to your own? Is it actually helping you to dwell? It certainly is helpful to be self-validated, but it's not helpful to only dwell. Uh, So how how do you, so, so I think it's, it's not like going, oh, okay, like, well, this happened and I'm just you know, going to get over it. It's not that. It's, and then, I, you know, when I think about my sister sometimes, like even just talking about it, uh, you, know, it you know, that was 25 years ago. I still tear up. Mm-hmm. Okay, I miss her still, but it's okay. I move on. Mm-hmm. I, I recognize it. I love her. I think about her and I, and I move on because I have to also function because there's other people in my life. There's the books I have to write with Dr. Gaylor. If I'm spending all my time you know, crying about it. And she's going to say, well, what the hell are you doing? Okay. Because that can happen. And I can still work towards a a better world, a better self, a better relationship. And it's a process. I think that's the piece. I mean, I think radical acceptance is a process of, you know, weeks, months, years that we move in and out of it. 
that's what I wanted to ask you next, but I want to, I know that Dr. Blaze has to go, right? You have to go mm-hmm. right now, right? I have, yeah, I might have just one, one, one more minute, but yeah. I think that Dr. Galen is, is very wise, which is why I like teaching. Although I have to go in about five minutes. Okay. Okay. She has to also go. But you okay. know what, but what you said earlier on is that you're going to, we, we're going to have a regular podcast. So, exactly. So exactly. Well, this isn't the end. Th- th- this could be the part one of the series because I feel like we just touched a tiny bit of we we just exposed the idea, but the how to is the whole book. And by the way, the book is full of the how tos and the steps. I, I was hoping that we'll have a little bit of time, but we're not going to have time because if Dr. Galen has to go and you have to go, so we're not going to have time. Maybe we'll have a part two of really taking a situation of the death of the non marriage of a, a brutal divorce or, or a loss of a business, for example. There's so many tragedies or even Corona, what happened in the world? Like just, and, and how do we take the tools that you wrote in the book and really break it down? And what does it look like? Cause all this is nice in theory, but when we're broken, we're like, okay, now where do I start? A friend of mine lost her son a few months ago and the pain she's going through, it's brutal. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's so, I can't even, I can't even express as a friend how hard it is to see it. And I know she has to be in that place of pain. So how do we know when it's time to like shift and how do we shift and what do we do? That whole shifting is so complex. Yeah, but, but, but she, this is so, so, so important. This is where black and white thinking doesn't actually serve us at all. Because people then think I either have to be in pain or I don't have to be in pain. But what I'm saying is, is that I can be in pain right now and still teach. I can be in pain and still love. I can be in pain and still help. And so the question is, is that, but if I'm only in pain, but then, then, then it sort of removes me from all the other things. And then it sort of makes the situation worse. And that is that you can be, I can have the worst toothache ever and still be able to do something. I can be in that kind of psychological pain and still be able to function. And this is where DBT comes in is, is sort of, that ability of not getting polarizing and not getting stuck. But what you're talking about is almost like the worst pain that most people will ever have to experience. But you know what? People have lost loved ones through the centuries and everything. And they have gotten through through the worst moments of their life. We forget that we're much more resilient and much more capable. Than we think, and so yeah, I definitely look forward to exploring this because I think it's it's such an important topic. I do have to go and teach my counselors. Thank you for writing your book. Thank you for giving hope. Thank you for bringing another how-to book out there because we just need it. The world is falling apart with mental illness or with regular illness with pain, and and we're still struggling. So thank you. I'll let you go. Thank you very much. We're going to have a part two. Okay, absolutely. Okay. Thanks Take a lot. care. See you later, Blaze. Bye. Bye. Take care. Okay, so Dr. Galen, I want to just capture a little bit of your mind for the next few minutes. This episode is sponsored by DBT Path. My emotions were all over the map. And even though I knew in my heart that I was capable, bright, and had potential, I'd repeatedly do things that others would say was self-sabotaging. I didn't want to sabotage myself. I just truly didn't know how to manage my emotions. And believe me, I'd tried a lot of things. It wasn't until I learned dialectical behavior therapy, DBT skills, that I learned how to embrace my sensitivity and finally feel in control. Whether for you it's BPD by 
bipolar, anxiety, PTSD, or any other reason that you regularly experience intense emotions, you can create the life that you want all online in a caring, non-judgmental community. Go to EmotionallySensitive.com now and join us. Learn DBT skills. Change your life. And now enjoy the rest of the episode. Let's take a tip that you love from the book regarding radical acceptance, a tip that you like doing with your patients that come and say, you know what, I'm done suffering. I'm in so much pain. I don't even have, you're telling me, it's like somebody told me, just take a sip of water. I can't, I know that a sip of water or Mm -hmm. a protein shake would help me. It's not going down my throat. So you're telling me, but I can't. So what do you do with your patients to really start implementing baby steps of radical acceptance in a practical way? There's big and little things to accept, right? There's the probably the big thing that made it hard to eat and hard to swallow and depressed and all that thing. And then there's, you know, okay, well, let's think about this moment right now. You may feel misery. Look around, you know, and tell me about this moment. Look around and tell me about the moment. So tell me what you see. Right. So often when we're in non-acceptance and suffering, we're inside, right? We're consumed by our own experience. So often the first thing I'll do with people is I'll say, like, let's open up, walk to the window. Tell me what's outside. Leave this room and go to another room in your house. What do you see? This is all. So that's that moment. Right. So go stand by your window and tell me what you see. That's a moment. So let's talk about acceptance of this moment right now. How is it? probably different than the moment that you were on in the couch. Maybe it's not the happiest moment of your life, but it's a different moment. So part of part of what I ask people to do is just begin by paying attention, right? We don't have to, you don't have to work on accepting the hardest thing that's on going on in your life. Pick one thing. You thought you couldn't get dressed today. Let's think about getting dressed. Let's think about what's one thing that you can do that you feel like you can do. And then let's pay attention to the experience. How does it feel different? Does it feel different? Is it the same sensations in your body? So part of radical acceptance is actually just paying attention to this idea that we can shift our experience. You can stand up and sit down. You may not feel happy standing up, but you'll feel different. Mm -hmm. You'll see something different. I often will tell people when they're sitting in the same space all the time, you know, to just spend a minute and, you know, turn around and look behind you. Same space. It's all been there, right? But we get closed up. We don't see the whole present moment that's right there. So that's where I start with people because I we often don't expand our awareness. And if you remember that mindfulness, mindfulness is focused attention and expanded awareness. Let's pay attention to the moment that we're actually in and let's see if that feels acceptable. Just one moment. I totally can relate to it because that the, mm. part of my healing experience was through gratitude. People know that mm. I have 53 episodes on gratitude because uh, if there's- awesome. If there's one thing I work with my clients is you could be on the biggest, like uh, tied to your bed because you're suicidal, whatever it is, there is always something to be grateful for. I don't care. There's always something. And I always say, I don't practice gratitude because I'm holy. I practice gratitude because it's my lifeline without gratitude. I just decline. I just, it's, it's, it's literally something that is a non-negotiable by me. So I can Mm -hmm. relate to it. A lot of people say to me, you don't understand because you have so much good in your life. So you don't understand that I cannot practice gratitude. I cannot see good, even though there could be a thousand good things, a million good things. There's always more good than negative. Always, always, always in the most tragic moments, there's always more good. It's what we pay Mm -hmm. attention to, the narrative, Mm -hmm. the story. 
but there's that ability to see the good. So when someone's mm-hmm. saying, listen, I, I, I don't want to even be grateful now. I don't want to be grateful. Do we say, okay, fine. That's your choice. You could. What I tend to say is whenever you're ready, I'm happy to help you. Gratitude is another one of those fascinating things because when we're not suffering, it's not hard to practice gratitude. Right. It's usually very easy. It's very right. easy. You know, it's like right. you have, I, I, my, my family always laughs because I'll sort of pause and they'll be like, are you having a gratitude moment? And I'm like, you caught me. I'm having one of those moments. You know, I yeah. must have a look yeah. on my face yes, or something. Yes, yes. And I have it at work. Everybody knows that right. I have it. But when you're suffering, you have to be skilled at dialectical thinking. You have to know that like, they can both exist, that I can be profoundly sad and in a lot of pain. And I can be grateful that my friend called. I can be grateful that I have a friend and that I have developed a relationship with somebody that cares so deeply mm-hmm. that they're checking in on me. That I can do that. And I think often it's, it's, the, it's the same thing with, it's, it's exactly the same thing with radical acceptance. And, and then I'm saying it's okay right? If I accept it, I agree with it. No, no, no. They're two totally separate things. I can be grateful and I can be in pain, but it means a practice in dialectical thinking. And that's hard. And I can tell you that the more emotionally um, emotional we are in DBT, we often say dysregulated, the Mm -hmm. more dysregulated we are, Mm -hmm. the more tunnel vision our thinking is. It gets very narrow. And so dialectical thinking usually goes out the window. Mm. It's hard. When emotions are running in a, in a, based on evolution, they get very focused because if we get scared, we're supposed to run. You know, right. when, the, when we're the caveman and the, you know, the whatever is after us, we run. So whenever we get a, emotional about things, very anxious or very sad, we get very narrow and that can become very hard. Mm-hmm. I can't possibly be grateful for anything in my life. My narrow, my thinking is narrow. I can't grab onto it. And that's the practice. And this is, and I know you'll agree with this. This is why I have everyone practice mindfulness. And mindfulness is gratitude. Like you can't have gratitude without mindfulness because then yeah. it doesn't come up. Like you're not aware. You can't because you can't pay attention. Because you're, you're not present in the now. I love that you're saying this. About two or three weeks ago, I recorded a solo episode because I had a really hard Friday. Now, usually mm. my I'm really a, a upbeat person with my anxiety through the day, but I come to center very fast. And I always say that my my healing brought me to center very fast instead of dwelling in my sadness for weeks on Mm. end and then just say, okay, fine, get up. Very fast, I come to center and I recognize it. So the other Friday, I had a horrible day and I said, I'm giving myself a pity party for a few hours. I'm going to allow it. And my husband's like, come on, come on. I want to make you happy. I'm like, no, Ari, you're not making me happy right now. I'm making space for sadness. Go Mm. out, go out. I don't want to know. And I'm going to shift out of it when I'm ready. And a few hours later, I was ready. And I said, the reason why I was ready so fast and still through the weekend, I was a little bit sad and down, but I, I so fast within the sadness brought moments of gratitude in it. And it wasn't in order to shift out the pain. They coexisted 100%. They coexisted. And I did a whole episode of pain and gratitude can coexist. Both of them can be strong and they don't have to take over each other. What yeah. happens is when we're mindful of the gratitude, we invite it more and it feels good. And we're like, yeah. we're comfortable to give up on the pain. Yeah. Well, and, and I love this. In DBT, we have a set of five ways to approach a problem. And the more mindful you are, the, the more choice you have. One of the choices is to entertain misery. Mm-hmm. We can do that. Mm-hmm. And what I actually love about what you said is that when people have mindfulness, they can throw themselves a pity party, know that they're at the party and decide to leave. Right. 
But when we don't have mindfulness, we don't know that we're at the party. We don't leave and we get stuck. Mm -hmm. And then we often worsen whatever the problem is. And so that's, I I think pity parties can be so beautifully validating, self-validating. It's just that we get in trouble when we're not aware that we're there and that we can't do things like then, okay, I'm here. Time to cultivate some gratitude. It's time to do some skills. And now I need to move usually towards some radical acceptance and then move on. Those are great. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. So I'm going to wrap up and I'll let you go. I just want to ask you the last question. I have two, actually two. Can I ask two more? Okay. One is short. One is short and one is going to be about how long. What is something that once you understood DBT and you started practicing it with your clients, what is something that is your go-to on yourself? Like constantly that you feel like this is a tool. It's my go-to tool. This is mindfulness. Mindfulness. So for me, it's, 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 it's mindfulness. It's get, it's being um, mindful and non-judgmental. Mm. and gratitude. So those are my practices because within me, I notice when I, my emotions rise, I notice more judgment. And I don't like the way that I feel when I'm judged, when I'm, you know, judging other people or judging myself. So I would say that, but mindfulness changed my life. When I found mindfulness and a story for another time, when Blaze and I went into the desert in Arizona with Marsha Linehan, who hosted these five-day mindfulness retreats in the desert. Wait, you met her? You met her? Oh, yeah. We've met her a whole bunch of times. Oh, my God. Okay. And we meditated with her five days in silence. And I had done a lot of meditation and a lot of yoga before. I'm a yoga instructor. But that changed. Mindfulness changed my life. It changed how I experienced myself, my life, the people in my life, my work. So for me, it's and everybody that works with me always rolls their eyes. They're like, I know, I know, Jillian, mindfulness, I know, mindfulness. And then, you know, they all get converted along the way. Yeah. Um, but for me, it's, you know, if you can practice five minutes of mindfulness a day, your life will change. Yeah. And I want to just say that when you're mindful, you're less judgmental. It's just, yes. a, right? It's a byproduct. It's really. It is. And, it's, and when my practice falls off, that's the first thing I notice. Oh, I got to get back to practicing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good reminder. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Great. I love that. And the question I ask everybody on Hope to Recharge, what does hope mean to you? So hope is a challenge. It, it, hope, is, hope is an interesting one um, for us in DBT, right? On one side, you know, I see, I see hope is the possibility for change. Now, what's tricky about hope in, in, from a mindful perspective. Because you're not in the now. It hasn't happened. You're right? not mindful. So, so, so the challenge that I always have, and not that I'm not a hopeful person, is but often when I work with people, the challenge with hope is the flip side of hope, is hopelessness versus hopefulness. And neither one of them are in the moment. One is the past often. And what one is either, you know, we're, we're stuck from the past or we're hopeless about, the, hopeless about the future. I have a funny relationship with hope. I tend to think of hope. For me, what I like about hope is the capacity to change, that there will be change. I don't know what the change will be. It may be in a great direction that I, I hope for, that I'm looking towards. It might surprise me and it might be something that I didn't expect. And it might be something that I'm not so happy about. But I like to think about hope is the capacity to change. But I'm always mindful of, of hope because I think the flip side of hope is really quite painful. Wow, that is so powerful. I interviewed somebody and she said, I didn't know what hope was. She, was, she had a terrible postpartum depression. She said, I didn't have hope and I didn't know it existed, but I was hoping that hope exists. So it was nice. Yeah. Thank you so much. Is it okay that we have another 
episode sure. that we could that just go out now that we cleared some of the fundamentals. Let's go into the practical next time and really give sure. tips for people that are in dire moments or not dire moments, just frustration, yeah. anger, resentment, grief, whatever. Dr. Jillian, That's thank it. you so much. Thank you for your time. And I'm You're so welcome. Thanks grateful. for having us. I'm really so grateful. And I hope to meet okay. you one day and do a yoga class with you. That would be great. I haven't taught in years, but I got to get back to it. Okay. Thank you. Take care, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening till the end. We highly appreciate all of our listeners. And Mental Health Together is better. You being here means a tremendous amount to us. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like some extra boost of information and inspiration that is not on the podcast, you can go to our website, hopetorecharge.com. There's some premium content that for the cost of a cup of coffee, you can download some amazing information that will help you, a tool that will guide you through life. So don't skip a beat. Don't hesitate. Go to hopetorecharge.com and see what other offerings we have there for your mental health well-being. Thank you for joining us. And remember, if you enjoyed this and you want to say thank you, the best way of gratitude will be by you leaving a review or a comment or sharing this with a loved one. There is no greater form of gratitude for us. Thank you. Bye till next time.